Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. As the Trump administration continues its attempted coup in Venezuela, a discussion with journalist Dan Cohen about his new article, The Making of Juan Guaido, How the U.S. Regime Change Laboratory Created Venezuela's Coup Leader. He's part of a long-term plot to overthrow the Venezuelan government and install a, you know, a leader who will basically do their bidding and open the country to, to foreign corporations. An Extinction Rebellion, the civil disobedience movement that sprang up in Europe to fight climate change, lifts off in the U.S. Everybody is waking up to the reality of the climate crisis and everybody is getting terrified and looking for something to do. And Extinction Rebellion is offering a, cl a clear path forward to making change and overcoming the power of fossil fuel money over our political system. This news and more coming up in this hour. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. This week, the Trump administration escalated its economic war against Venezuela by announcing new sanctions against the state-owned oil company PDVSA and claimed that it would give Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido control over Venezuela's assets in the U.S. The Bank of England also refused to release Venezuela's $1.2 billion in gold back to the country's elected government, headed by Nicolas Maduro. Meanwhile, allies of the Venezuelan government are calling on the U.S. to stop the illegal economic stranglehold on the country. Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, tweeted, quote, If we really want to support the Venezuelan people, we can lift the economic sanctions that are inflicting suffering on innocent families, making it harder for them to access food and medicines, and deepening the economic crisis. We should support dialogue, not a coup. End quote. We'll have more on Venezuela after headlines, but here to discuss more international news is on the grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn. Thanks for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, in addition to just some members of Congress speaking out against the U.S. attempted coup in Venezuela, there were other developments on Capitol Hill that impact outside of our borders. Senator Bernie Sanders officially reintroduced a war powers resolution on Wednesday in order to block further U.S. military participation in that Saudi-led war on Yemen. But it is also supposedly set to vote starting next week on the controversial Strengthening America's Security in the Middle East Act. And some news organizations like the New York Times are saying that this is expected to pass with bipartisan support. And that's even though it includes this very controversial measure that would affirm the right of state and local governments to break financial ties with companies or supposed individuals basically that participate in the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions movement against the apartheid state of Israel. So the ACLU has been staunchly against this type of legislation, calling it a violation of free speech. But what's your take? Well, you may have heard the news as reported in the New York Times that the Democratic Party leadership is quite concerned about the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement. And so they formed this new pressure group called the Coalition for a Democratic Majority. 
They're quite worried about the popularity, for example, of Congresswoman Omar of Minnesota. And it's no accident that the leader of this new so-called Coalition for Democratic Majority is the former governor of Michigan, Jennifer Granholm, since we know that Detroit in Michigan has a substantial black population. It has a substantial population of Arab descent as well, and therefore is perceived probably correctly as a hotbed of BDS sentiment. So in other words, rather than pressure Israel to end settlement building, uh, rather than objecting to Mr. Trump moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, the Democratic Party is going to try to stamp out any sentiment that's pro-BDS. Now, what's striking is that the so-called Coalition for Democratic Majority is also designed to bolster Democrats who are being challenged from their left. And the New York Times article just referenced, uh, singled out in that regard, was Hakeem Jeffries of Congressional Black Caucus in Brooklyn, who presumably will be facing a primary challenge. He's a Wall Street favorite, and this coalition will presumably be backing him against that primary challenge. Also on their list for those who will be facing challenges is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I'm speaking of Elliot Engel of the Bronx, who represents a heavily black and Latino district adjacent, by the way, to the district of Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. And he, too, will be receiving support from those who will be challenging him because of his pro-Israeli positions. Uh, Likewise, if you look at Congressman Adam Schiff, the head of the House Intelligence Committee, who, by the way, is backing Mr. Trump on Venezuela as he's presumably challenging him with regard to Mr. Trump's own uh, corruption, is also a a tool of the pro-Israeli lobby. So uh, it seems to me, at least, that the so-called Coalition for a Democratic Majority is designed to bolster Israeli confrontation with Iran in the long run. And in the short term, it's obviously designed to beat back the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Well, that's certainly something to watch. I mean, given Nancy Pelosi's support of Trump for this Venezuela attempted coup and also supporting John Bolton, this is just a further sign that the Democratic leadership and those that are following them are totally out of step with the the left of the party and progressives who don't want to see this type of intervention and don't want to see continued U.S. complicity in what's happening in Yemen or in Palestine. So I know that you also are keeping watch on many international issues that we're not. And one is the growth of the Russian economy. Well, it wasn't reported on this side of the Atlantic, but press reports outside of this country indicated that Russia is on track to replace Germany as the fifth largest economy uh, in the world. Now, this may come as a surprise to those who have echoed the racist comments of former and late uh, U.S. Senator John McCain, who oftentimes referred to Russia derisively in a racist manner as uh, upper volta with missiles, that is to say, associating it with the African country now known as Burkina Faso. Of course, he ignores the fact that uh, Russia's population is about 150, 160 million, about twice that of Germany. Certainly, it has a larger territory and obviously has uh, more natural resources, including uh, oil, to begin with. And it's also further evidence that this decades-long crusade of the Cold War, spending trillions to bring down the Soviet Union, has not necessarily paid the kinds of dividends 
that Washington and U.S. imperialism expected, which I think is one of the reasons why there's this crisis with Venezuela. There's going to be a, a compensatory effort to make up for what was not necessarily gained with the bringing down of the Soviet Union. This came up implicitly just this past week in Congress when the intelligence chiefs and the head of the FBI testified before Congress on the so-called threat assessment that is challenging Washington as we speak. And it's striking that a good deal of the testimony focused on this developing alliance between Russia and China. That is to say that U.S. imperialism, one of the ways they were able to bring down the Soviet Union was cutting this deal with China some 45-odd years ago, but that led to massive foreign direct investment into China, which has created this juggernaut, which has now led to a standoff between Washington and Beijing over trade, which is unfolding as we speak. And what's striking is that this bad deal is now reflected in popular culture. Uh, You might have seen the movie Crazy Rich Asians, where in one scene, Chinese Singaporeans tell their kids to eat their dinner because they're poor kids in the United States who are not able to eat and are going to bed hungry. In fact, the New York Times columnist Roger Cohen suggested that the bookends for the contemporary era are the the books, uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which of course the film is based upon, and Hillbilly Elegy, uh, which talks about the poverty of Appalachia and Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, for example, which helped to create, in part, the Trump victory. And so what we see is that after all of this spending and after all of these wars and focus on Moscow, the United States has wound up with a situation where they're facing a resurgent Russia and a formidable China. And what this reminds me of, too, if I may make one more point, is what happened to the British Empire, which also had an obsession with Russia. That was the import of the Crimean War in the 1850s. That was the import of supporting Japan against Russia in 1905, which then led to the Russian Revolution in 1917, and then London was paid back in 1941 when Japan attacked the British Empire, seizing its colonies, Hong Kong and Singapore, which meant the beginning of the end for the British Empire. Uh, We can only hope that Washington's obsession with Moscow does not end with a similar disaster. When you were speaking about that, I was thinking about also all the sanctions. And, you know, even to this day, this whole current debate about whether there should be more sanctions on Russia and whether it's having any impact at all. So if their economy is growing in spite of that seems to give more credence to the idea that these sanctions only, I guess, force Russia to rely even less on the West, and they were strengthened in spite of the sanctions. Well, two so-called theorists of U.S. foreign policy had a piece in the Wall Street Journal just the other day. I'm speaking of Graham Ellison and Dimitri Symes, a former uh, advisor to Richard Nixon. Symes, of course, was the president of the Richard M. Nixon Foundation. And they counseled that Washington needs to kiss and make up with Moscow. That's the only way Washington can successfully confront China. And that, of course, was said without any reference to Mr. Trump's foreign policy, which has been accused of being in the pocket of Moscow, 
And that kind of challenge from the Democratic Party leadership is actually compromising the ability of U.S. imperialism to stand tall, ultimately in its confrontation with China. Okay, well, we're definitely going to keep an eye on, I guess, you know, what's happening with Russia. I mean, we, we can't help but, you know, it's in our face constantly. So we might as well get some real information about what's really happening in the country. Here, here. All right. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. My brother's doing fast on my mother's TV. Says she watches too much. It's just not healthy. All my children in the daytime, Dallas at night. Can't even see the game or the Sugar Ray fight. The bill collectors, they ring my phone and scare my wife when I'm not home. Got a bum education, double-digit inflation. Can't take the train to the job. There's a strike at the station. Neon King Kong standing on my back. Can't stop to turn around. Broke my sacroiliac, a mid-range migraine, cancer membrane. Sometimes I think I'm going insane. I swear I might hijack a plane. Don't push me. Call. I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. In a follow-up to an international story we covered last week, Journalist Marzia Hashimi, who had been imprisoned in the U.S. for 11 days with no charges, returned to Iran this week. When she arrived Wednesday in Tehran, where she works as a popular show host for Press TV, she was greeted by throngs of media, fans, and co-workers before making her way to a TV studio and addressing viewers. I'm so grateful for everyone, all the prayers that were coming from all over the world, and of course the young people who were so active on social media, uh, especially the uh, uh, young people in the U.S., in Europe, and also Iran. I'm very appreciative. And, and of course to all my colleagues here at Press TV and working around the clock to get this story out. I think it's very important, the whole media coverage and media attention that this story um, got, Danny, and I definitely feel that it makes uh, made a big difference. And uh, I have a lot of things to talk about and a lot to say in the upcoming days. Hashimi has retained a lawyer who is handling her case about the abuse and violation of her human rights endured while incarcerated with no charges. Another story about abuses in U.S. detention made headlines this week. The Associated Press reported on Thursday that immigration and customs enforcement officials are reportedly using plastic nasal tubes to force feed at least six detained migrants who have been on a prolonged hunger strike to protest conditions at an El Paso, Texas prison. According to the AP, the detainees began their hunger strike to protest verbal abuse and threats of deportation by guards. 
Rights groups say that both the United Nations and the World Medical Association have condemned force feeding as torture. And in our last bit of international news, those concerned about the election of neo-fascist Jair Bolsonaro as Brazil's president hosted a forum on Thursday night in Northwest D.C. Chantel James attended and has more. With the rise of fascism in Brazil symbolized by the October election of President Jair Bolsonaro, D.C. United Against Hate formed a coalition with six other organizations to present a discussion on the state of Brazil at the Petworth Library Thursday night. The goal was to provide a picture of the urgency in Brazil in support of their planned protests of Bolsonaro's March visit with Trump. Speakers like Anato Hosanda, legislator in Brazil, James Green, professor of Brazilian history at Brown University, and Christian Poitier, senior member of Amazon Watch, called attention to the ways Bolsonaro is already beginning to fulfill his platform by implementing policies that threaten the Amazon, Brazil's indigenous peoples, and the LGBTQ community. Activists from Brazil spoke to the more than 70 attendees by video as part of the interactive discussion. James Green and others drew parallels to the candidacy of Donald Trump on far-right promises and the erosion of democracy in Brazil. What is important to understand is that while the government of Bolsonaro, we just learned today that his son, who was in the United States, is saying, well, that was all campaign rhetoric. We just said that to get elected, but we're not going to really carry out that plan. And we know that discourse from this country, that Donald Trump was just going to carry out this crazy rhetoric, but wasn't going to implement his plans when he came to power uh, two years ago. And we've seen exactly how he's very determined to carry out his full program in this country. So I believe that the same thing is the case for Bolsonaro in Brazil. That his campaign rhetoric, which called for the elimination of the Workers' Party, the criminalization of the Workers' Party, the end to the protection of indigenous people, the deforestation of the Amazon, the deregulation of environmental protection, attacks on social movements, all was part of the electoral campaign, and all of it he's trying to implement today in Brazil. So we have a very serious situation where Brazil's democracy is incredibly under attack. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. And finally in culture and media, after singer Rihanna decided to boycott performing at Sunday's Super Bowl, other artists, including Cardi B, followed suit, protesting the way that the NFL has violated the free speech rights of quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who began the take-a-knee actions on field to protest police brutality and police killings. Variety Magazine reports that Maroon 5 is scheduled to perform during this year's Super Bowl halftime. There have been online petition drives to convince Maroon 5 not to perform. And finally, our quote of the week, which earns a wow emoji again, only because there's no cursing emoji that I know of. And this is from John Bolton on Fox Business, chattering away about how the attack on Venezuela is really about the oil. 
We're in conversation with major American companies now that are either in Venezuela or in the case of Citgo here in the United States. Uh, I think we're trying to get to the same end result here. You know, uh, Venezuela is one of the three countries I call the Troika of Tyranny. It'll make a big difference to the United States economically if we could have American oil companies really invest in and, and produce the oil uh, capabilities in uh, Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of the United States. We both have a lot at stake here, making this come out the right way. Wow, how creepy and evil that sounds. But those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, turning up for Extinction Rebellion. Stay with us. Sincere congratulations to Rihanna and Cardi B for refusing to perform at halftime. And why is that, Miss Lewis? Because that's enough. Everybody check your soul at the Super Bowl. That's enough. Take away their fun before they shoot your son. That's enough. Ancestors kneeled in the cotton fields. That's enough. Whites, blacks, Jews. We've got to refuse. That's enough. Get a backbone before a bullet comes down on the back of your own. That's enough. Before another hate crime, be the gladiators of our time. You're the gladiators of our time. You want a standing ovation? Take a knee for the next generation. My name is Russell Gray. I'm here with Extinction Rebellion today. We're participating in a National Day of Rebellion for Extinction Rebellion in solidarity with 15 other cities in the United States, all doing some degree of civil disobedience or spreading the word about the climate disaster. So here in D.C., we did a funeral procession to the Natural History Museum, and we held a memorial service for all the plants and animals who have already died from ecological degradation. And then we occupied an intersection and stopped traffic at a at a busy road. So, when you look at extinction, how many species are we talking about? Um, so, there's a couple of different ways to think about it. One is that, on average, 70% of animal populations have died since 1970. For insects, they've lost 75% of their biomass. You know, 200 species go extinct every day. And that's like 1,000 times the normal rate of extinction. So we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction event right now. And it's just, it's just everywhere. There's animals and plants dying at an incredible rate. Is this the first, I guess, kickoff for the U.S. part of Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, so we did an action here in D.C. in December, but at that time we were the only chapter. And since then, Extinction Rebellion has spread to at least 30 other cities. So this was the first national day of action for Extinction Rebellion. And just talk a little bit about organizing in the U.S. and, and what, what that's been like. 
So I'm actually completely new to organizing. I was working for the federal government up until November, and I left to start organizing with Extinction Rebellion. So I'm super inexperienced and trying to kind of figure it out as I go along. But my sense is that this moment right now is everybody is waking up to the reality of the climate crisis and everybody is getting terrified and looking for something to do. And Extinction Rebellion is offering a, cl a clear path forward to making change and overcoming the power of fossil fuel money over our political system. So I just sense that there's a lot of momentum, just not even because of anything that we're doing, but just because of the broader situation. How do you think organizing and activism is going to intersect with like right down the street here with Capitol Hill and the White House? where there's so much either blindness or outright opposition to making moves. So for one thing, our plan of being disruptive and blocking the system from operating as it intends to, to operate creates visibility and it forces people to pay attention to what we're doing. If you're stuck in traffic because of one of our protests, then it's impossible to ignore what we're, what we're doing and, it's, and therefore it's impossible to ignore climate change. The other thing is that fossil fuel companies and big agricultural companies have a, a huge amount of power from the amount of wealth that they have and they're exerting that over Congress and our president and keeping them from doing what needs to be done on the planet. And the only way things are going to change is if there's a counterbalancing amount of power and the only place that can come from is the power of the people and the best way to marshal that power is through civil disobedience. So we're hoping to enact change by putting pressure on the system from outside, from people in the streets refusing to participate, and we're hoping that that will be sufficient to change the government's mind and make them start taking action that they haven't taken before. So, you know, also here in D.C., we have the Sunrise Movement. They occupy Pelosi's office. And we also have people in Congress new and, you know, talking about a Green New Deal. What's your impression of those efforts? Uh, yeah, we, we're super supportive of what they're doing. Anybody that's working for the climate is a hero, in my view. As a movement, Extinction Rebellion doesn't endorse any specific solutions to the climate crisis. Our intention is to be the force that that opens up space for solutions to be implemented, but we're not trying to say that we know what's best. The general idea, we're, we're just trying to create the space so that the solutions become not only uh, possible, but necessary that in this political climate. And then once that happens, we'll allow other experts to come in and, and say what they think is best. Okay, so what's next? Uh, if people want to connect with your next action or be in touch with you, how do they get involved? So you can go to our website. Uh, it's x, the letter x, rebellion.org slash xr dash us. Uh, and there you can find out more info and sign up for a, a email us for a chapter. You can also go to our Facebook page at Extinction Rebellion US and there's a sign up page there to join our email lists. And that's how we get out the word about our actions. So if you're on the list you'll hear about everything we're doing it's also a way to get involved with a, a local chapter if you're interested okay thank you thank you my name is nancy wallace and i'm here participating in the protest against extinction of life on the planet and collecting signatures so that the green party of maryland can continue to be a party in the future and climate change is our top issue so okay. we're on the front lines we've been on the front lines 
for 20 years on this. And the Green New Deal is the hallmark, the centerpiece of our platform for the last 12 years. Okay. Finally getting some attention from uh, the uh, some of the other progressives, but we have uh, laid out that intellectual and political platform mm -hmm. very clearly uh, at our gp.org website. Mm -hmm. And okay. we need, we are on the front lines. And we're also the only political party in the United States that doesn't take any money from corporations, including the fossil fuel industry. Every other political party takes money from the fossil fuel industry. Right, right. The, whole, the party as a, as a whole, right. Mm -hmm. So... Is the Green Party in danger of not maintaining as a party? Right. Until we reach 1% in the governor's race, every four years we go through this process. This is the sixth time that we have reached out to the public to help us stay a party and present these types of ideas like the Green New Deal to the public. So tell me, 1% of votes or 1% of signature? We need 1% of the votes for the governor's race every four years. And we got a half a percent this time. So more, we got a lot of votes overall. We got 150,000 votes with 27 candidates. Uh, but it didn't reach that particular legal threshold. Yeah. Maybe some people were trying to help Vangelis and felt like, oh, well, this is a real, you know, I really can't split my vote this time. I really need to try and get Ben Jealous in there. But do you, have you ever gotten 1%? Uh, yes, Jill Stein got over 1% uh, in the past uh, presidential election. So we do feel confident that in the future uh, we will be able to maintain the ballot access and focus on presenting these novel, great ideas to the public uh, instead of collecting signatures. On the other hand, it's great to be out here and talking to people, and it's just wonderful to connect with average voters. So maybe in a way they should let us stay a party without doing that. Yeah. It's a single status. Okay. So in order to put candidates on for federal, state, and local, we need to be re-registered as a party for the state of Maryland. Right. And, and to get that, for all, all across the board, it has to be 1% for the governor. Yes. Where unfortunately, the state law has been written so that we cannot use 1% for president. We cannot use 1% for senator. It has to be the governor's race for some reason. Okay. But okay. Uh, we accept that challenge, and we love to come out and talk to people. We collected 17,000 signatures uh, four years ago. And... Um, we, we are delighted that more and more of the people are, are interested in adopting our position. Universal health care, $15 an hour minimum wage, Green New Deal, uh, free college education. It's actually the majority position of most of America. So right. if there were no restrictive legislation across the country uh, against uh, smaller and newer parties, then actually we think we uh, would be much further along. But that's where we are, so that's where we need to move forward. Right, okay. To. That was Nancy Wallace and before her, Russell Gray, speaking at the Rebellion Day One event on Pennsylvania Avenue in Northwest D.C. on Saturday, January 26, 2019. And that was part of a National Day of Action sponsored by Extinction Rebellion, a grassroots movement fighting climate change. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. Yo, we on some hot music, the hot music. 
together, things fall apart. That's where the news acts start. Once again, it's the thought. South Philly, Dalai Lama, Roots, Crew, Black Thought. This directed to whoever and listen and rage. Yo, the whole state of things and the world about to change. Black rain falling from the sky looks strange. The ghetto was red hot. We stepping on flames. Hey, yo, it's inflation on the price for fame. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, this week the Trump administration escalated its economic war against Venezuela by announcing new sanctions against the state-owned oil company PDVSA and said that it would give Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido control over Venezuela's assets here in the U.S. Almost immediately after declaring himself interim president last week and being recognized by the United States, Guaido already had drafts in hand to privatize Venezuela's state-owned oil assets. But who is Juan Guaido? My next guest is going to help us answer that question. Dan Cohen is a journalist and filmmaker. He has produced widely distributed video reports and print dispatches from across Israel-Palestine, and that includes the film Killing Gaza, which we have featured on this show. He is co-author, along with Max Blumenthal, of a new article at the Gray Zone Project, The Making of Juan Guaido, How the U.S. Regime Change Laboratory Created Venezuela's Coup Leader. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Good to be with you, Esther. Well, this is really in-depth reporting that you have in this article. And so I really first want you to be able to break down for us who Juan Guaido is and where he came from. Obviously, most people in Venezuela didn't even know who he was until last week. And now he's been named by a foreign power as interim president. So why don't we start with that? First, we have to understand some context about what, ha- what is happening in Venezuela. Currently, what we are seeing is uh, the United States and the European Union, as well as a host of right-wing Latin American countries who have been subjected to coups themselves in order to bring uh, U.S.-friendly governments to power, they are essentially attempting to force Venezuelans to renounce democracy, except Juan Guaido, who is essentially a pawn of the United States, and I'll explain how, all in order to open Venezuela's oil reserves, which are the largest in the world, to exploitation by foreign corporations. Now, these oil reserves are what former President Hugo Chavez used to basically bring Venezuelans out of poverty, and basically millions of people you know, living in the barrios and the poor areas were able to come out of poverty and have a better standard of living um, as a result of nationalizing the oil company. And so this oil is at the heart of what's happening here. Now, Juan Guaido, he was actually trained with United States backing by a group called OTPOR. In, in 2007, this began. So he's part of a long-term plot to overthrow the Venezuelan government and install a, you know, a leader who will basically do their bidding and open the country to to foreign corporations. Now, Juan Guaido, until this month, January, 81% of Venezuelans had never heard of him. He was a middling figure in a far-right party known for extreme acts of violence, including burning supporters of the government, like burning their bodies, shutting down roadways with violent barricades, burning public buildings, all in order to get a reaction from the government, from the Venezuelan government and security services, in order to create the pretext for a humanitarian intervention in the United States, like we've seen in Libya, like we've seen in Syria. Well, we've, we actually covered some of that in 2014, the Garimbas. Are you you're referring to that kind of street violence and murders? 
precisely. So Juan Guaido participated. He's a leader in these Guarimba street violent demonstrations. And he and all of his party members, it's called the Popular Will Party, which is funded by a number of Venezuelan exiled oligarchs, basically these very you know, wealthy Venezuelans who, let, who basically left the country, and many of them came to the United States when Hugo Chavez came to power in 1999. So how do we understand who Juan Guaido is? He went from this middling figure in a, in a far-right, discredited party in a disjointed opposition who is totally unpopular on the ground in Venezuela because of these gruesome acts of street violence. And so how does, how does this little figure go from basically a nobody to the interim president, the su- supposed interim president recognized by the United States of Venezuela? But we have to understand what are called color revolutions and the National Endowment for Democracy. National Endowment for Democracy is the United States regime change meddling arm. And it doesn't get really talked about in U.S. media, but it's an incredibly important institution. So with the National Endowment for Democracy, back in 1998, started training a group of students, Serbian anti-communist students, in order to overthrow the Yugoslavian government, which it successfully did. It brought down Slobodan Milosevic in 2000. That was the first time. So then these students, they grow up and they started basically a regime change mercenary outfit where they would go around Central Asia and basically with funding from the National Endowment for Democracy, the CIA, the Albert Einstein Institute, basically these various regime change arms of the U.S., they would go around and train students how to overthrow you know, so-called dictators that were not friendly to the U.S., that wanted to forge their own path or that were aligned you know, with Russia. And so some of them were very successful, some of them were not. In 2007, basically the United States set its sights on Venezuela once again. Um, it's, it's always had its sights on Venezuela ever since Hugo Chavez came to power in 1998. It sought to overthrow what's called the Bolivarian Revolution. And it started training groups of students. So the Serbian group of students is called OTPOR, which means resistance in Serbian. And so the spinoff that they created with all of these color revolutions in Central Asia is called Canvas. Now, Canvas was contracted. Now, before you go to Canvas, um, tell me uh, a little bit about more, more about the center. Uh, is this at all government funded? Yes, Canvas is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy with U.S. tax dollars, by the CIA, by the um, International Republican Institute, which was headed by, you know, until he died, Senator John McCain, one of the most hawkish neoconservatives around. So this is all using U.S. tax dollars basically to train students to collapse their own governments in order to open the way for U.S. uh, corporations to come in and destroy the social, you know, safety nets that kind of keep the population going and for foreign exploitation, you know, for exploitation by foreign corporations. Okay, and then I don't want you to lose your train of thought and then explain to us who, you know, who might not know the term, what a, what a color revolution is. Well, a color revolution, it's what I was explaining, that you have these states, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the U.S. and EU and NATO wanted to continue its shift, even though the Soviet Union had been defeated and the Cold War should have been over. Well, now you have all these states that are aligned, basically aligned with Russia, former Soviet satellite states, 
and the U.S. wanted to bring them into its sphere of influence. And so in order to do that, you have to basically give it this veneer of democracy. So you start training these students, student protesters, that the United States started training these student protesters in order to bring down the government. Right. So you're saying cover, C-O-V-E-R, not color, C-O-L-O-R. No, no, it is it is color revolution. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Now, I thought so, but I was just trying to understand. Maybe because I'm a person of color. I'm like, what is, what is this color revolution? What does that have to do with it? But anyway, go ahead and talk about Canvas and uh, South America or Latin America. Sure. So these Serbian students who the U.S. was training, they developed basically a regime change mercenary outfit. It was called Canvas. Um, and Canvas, WikiLeaks released documents that Canvas and the U.S. and this organization uh, called Stratfor, which is like a private um, intelligence agency, like a, it's called the private CIA a lot of times. They started saying, okay, we're going to send Venezuelan students, right-wing Venezuelan students, to train with Canvas in order to start, you know, street demonstrations to overthrow the government. And they basically developed a 10-year plan in 2007. And this is when Juan Guaido started taking part in these training sessions. There was one the Venezuelan security services alleged where Juan Guaido, along with several other members of his political party called Popular Will, went to Mexico City where they took part in a, in a canvas training and also there was a plot hatched to assassinate then-President Hugo Chavez. Now, it came back after this training, started doing these demonstrations against Chavez's constitutional referendum, which basically would have paved the way for what Chavez called 21st century socialism. They actually defeated it, and then in 2009, there were more demonstrations uh, 2010, attended an, um, another training, um, and so basically this continued to go on. Now, now why Juan Guaido, instead of a, more, a, a higher figure up? Well, the rest of the party, starting with Leopoldo Lopez, these guys are accused, and many of them have been proven, of major acts of violence. They've been found with bombs, with explosives, and so they're either in jail in Venezuela, or many of them fled to the United States. And so Juan Guaido was down far enough on the, on the chain that he was one of the remaining guys. Um, he was never a popular figure in his party. He was never a leader, but he just simply was usable. So kind of to be used as a pawn in this whole plot to overthrow the Venezuelan government. And he received a call from Vice President Mike Pence on January 21st at night and said, if you declare yourself president tomorrow morning, I will back you. But behold, he does it. There's absolutely no legitimacy to his declaration and the United States, the EU have embraced it. And now we just learned Thursday morning that the Venezuelan security services alleged there was a plot by the CIA and the Colombian intelligence, basically traitorous members of the Venezuelan military, to assassinate uh, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro as the EU is recognizing, you know, the self-declared president Juan Guaido as the actual president of Venezuela. So, so the, this news, this, um, this breaking news about this plot came out on Thursday? Yes, this came out on uh, Thursday morning. The Venezuelan 
um, basically the equivalent of the Homeland Security Minister, presented it, said um, they, they stopped a car that was uh, going to Colombia with a number of weapons, um, and um, they found a bunch of armbands, which uh, have been proven before in different plots, these, these blue armbands that say OC, meaning Operation Constitution, um, that were part of a plot to basically storm the, the Miraflores presidential palace in Caracas, in the capital, um, take and kill uh, President Nicolas Maduro. So this is alleged at this point, and, uh, you know, we're going to see how, how it shakes out. But, I mean, this is, if this is true, this is a classic CIA plot to basically assassinate the elected leader and install their pawn as president. Wow. Okay, yeah, we're well, definitely going to keep an eye on on those those developments. You know, a lot of people in this country don't know about the racialized nature of the violence of the Garimbas and this, did you say, popular will party? And what can you tell us about about that and how it fits into the grooming of Guaido and others in this party? Well, the Guarimbas are basically a revolt of the elite. If you look at where they've taken place, they're mostly in the wealthiest neighborhoods. They don't really have popular support. And basically who they target are people living in barrios, many people of color, black and brown people who have been subjected to these horrible conditions under the previous government before Hugo Chavez came to power and nationalized the oil industry. And so the Guarimbas are, they've actually, you know, taken black supporters of Chavez, they call them Chavistas, and burned them, killed them and burned their bodies to send a message. So they're incredibly violent. One of the other methods they have, it's called Guayas, where they take like a steel cable or barbed wire and string it across a uh, roadway. Um, And then it's to kill motorcyclists. And this has killed a number of people. So like if you're on a motorcycle and you're just driving, you catch this, you catch a tight piece of barbed wire. And in 2014, one young man was decapitated. So these are just the most gruesome acts of street violence. And, you know, this is all about getting the, you know, creating chaos. Uh, in order to have the Venezuelan security services crack down. And then Western media says, oh, look at these, you know, authoritarian dictators. We have to go in and save these people. And it's just this, like, disgusting excuse to overthrow legitimately elected president. And I should say, you know, even among the supporters of Chavez, the, of Hugo Chavez, who is, you know, very popular, there's a lot of dissent. There's a lot of people who disagree with how current president Nicolas Maduro has handled, handled this. But I mean, popular, this far right party, popular will has almost no support on the ground. It's only in, you know, I mean, we saw demonstrations yesterday. There were a few dozen. Now it's funny because if you look at what president Trump is saying, he's saying all the people of Venezuela are coming out in the streets, you know, in support of uh, Juan Guaido. And it's like literally a few dozen people. Well, you know, that's, it's very interesting you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about press coverage. I mean, it's not just what Trump is saying. If you watch most American TV, if you watch BBC, which is, you know, from the UK, these really corporate, really mainstream news outlets, they emphasize or keep showing what they say are huge crowds coming out in support of Guaido. But they don't show the massive demonstrations in support of Maduro and the government and the Bolivarian revolution. 
So you're you're at a, a news outlet, you know, alternative media. What do you think about this week's or this coverage of the Venezuelan crisis? Even this this week, the the New York Times allowed a op-ed by Guaido onto its pages. The media coverage has been atrocious. I would say even worse than one-sided. I mean, to say that Guaido is some kind of popular figure is just totally at odds with the reality. And the fact that the New York Times on Wednesday gave Guaido an op-ed where he said, there, uh, we, need to in- we need a minimum amount of bloodshed. So he's saying there will be bloodshed. He doesn't say how much is acceptable. You know, just keep it to a minimum in, in order to oust Maduro. So he wants violence. He knows it's the only way it can happen, and he needs the backing of the United States. Meanwhile, the elected president of Venezuela, uh, Nicolas Maduro, is putting videos on Facebook and Twitter saying, please, people of America, people of the United States, go out and you know, demonstrate against this intervention from Donald Trump um, and don't, don't start the, the Vietnam of Latin America, is what he called it, because you can right. be sure that if there is an invasion, which is basically what the United States is threatening, with John Bolton holding up a piece of paper at a press conference that says 5,000 troops to Colombia, this is why Colombia was brought into NATO a few months ago. Somehow, Colombia is now part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, even though it's a South American country. This is basically about destroying the last major remnant of sovereignty and a socialist experiment in Latin America, and the media coverage has totally been atrocious. So on one hand, we have Juan Guaido, the fake president, the unelected president, uh, who is uh, anointed president by the United States and now the European Union, writing in the New York Times, calling for violence. And you have the actual president of Venezuela calling for peace and warning against a horrible, bloody war just on Facebook. And, he's, and it's totally ignored. So wow. it's absolutely prop- propagandistic and shameful and a disservice to the people of Venezuela and to, and to the people of the United States and everyone who wants peace. Well, that's a good note to leave it on. We're going to continue to cover this story. I want to thank my guest, Dan Cohen, journalist, filmmaker. He has produced widely distributed dispatches from across Israel, Palestine, and that includes the film Killing Gaza, which we have featured on this show. He is co-author, along with Max Blumenthal, of a new article at the Gray Zone Project, The Making of Juan Guaido, How the U.S. Regime Change Laboratory Created Venezuela's Coup Leader. Thank you for joining me today, Dan. Thanks so much, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. On Tuesday, February 5th, from 6 to 7.30 p.m., actor Danny Glover and Latin American expert James Counts Early will be in a discussion on the topic Venezuela and the Bellicose Return of the Monroe Doctrine at the offices of the Institute for Policy Studies, 1301 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest, 6th Floor, in Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we played this hour included The Message by Grandmaster Flash, Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z and Alicia Keys, Jennifer Lewis, That's Enough, from a video she posted on YouTube, The Next Movement by The Roots, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. 
You can contact us, support us, and partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter under On The Ground Show, and we're on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And you can subscribe to support On The Ground on Patreon. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be at the Know Thyself Book Fair Saturday, February 2nd, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the Thurgood Marshall Center, 1816 12th Street in Northwest D.C. But until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Oh, what is this?